If you spend any time on social media, like many of us do, there are a few things that it doesn't take long to figure out. Um, and I want to list just a few of those things that I've kind of seen uh, in, over the last probably year or more, probably more. Uh, one, there's a great deal of division within the body of Christ, and that division is into various camps. Uh, that Those camps include uh, political camps, national camps, uh, racial, ethnic camps, philosophical camps, socioeconomic camps, and the list goes on and on. Uh, secondly, there seems to be a particularly, particularly high level of anger, and it doesn't take long uh, before conversations seem to escalate. Uh, third, there's this uh, obvious increase in self-righteousness and um, what has been termed virtue signaling. Uh, fourth, there's, uh, there are numbers of conversations regarding injustice and those conversations about injustice seem to be outnumbering those conversations about grace. And then finally, there seems to be a trend toward repentance growing more and more insufficient in regards to our forgiveness. It seems more and more that repentance and grace and compassion are taking a back seat to things like penance and reparations and restitution. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of that perfect storm, we have hope. And we have hope because God, in the midst of that, is speaking savingly and perfectly He's speaking uh, savingly and perfectly. He's acting savingly and perfectly through which, uh, through that which he has already perfectly and savingly spoken and acted. In other words, he is he is acting and speaking through the word of God and particularly through the gospel. And it's the gospel that's our hope in the midst of all that's going on. And so, um, and, and I hope that we see that tonight as we look at. Jonah chapter 4, and not only Jonah chapter 4, but as we summarize the book as a whole. You'll notice in the back of your uh, bulletin, there is an outline. We're going to look at four things tonight. We're going to look at what the story reveals about Jonah. We're going to look at what the story reveals about God. We're going to uh, notice what or how the story points at us, and then how the story points us to the Lord Jesus. And before we look at how the story points or what the story reveals about Jonah, I want to remind us of what has taken place um, for the first three chapters. If you remember in Jonah chapter one, Jonah receives a directive from the Lord and he is to call out against the city of Nineveh because they're evil. And Jonah puts his foot down. He doesn't just say no in disobedience. He says no defiantly. He stomps his foot and, and screams no. And, and we see that defiance because he disregards the word of God. He disregards prayer. And he disregards obedience. And, and even when we try, and we, we can't even give him the benefit of the doubt. Because even when we see him somewhat or we think act heroically by volunteering to be thrown off the side of the boat. We know that he's he's really not acting in the best interest of those around him. He's acting in his own best interest because what he's doing is he's digging in his heels and saying, I would rather die than do what you want me to do, Lord. I, I don't want to go back to Joppa because I don't want to go to Nineveh. And so I just I, I'd rather jump. And he does and he's swallowed by a fish. In chapter 2, we see Jonah repent. 
Uh, not once does he complain, not once does he whine, not once does he accuse God of ever being unfair because of his circumstances. Rather, he sees his circumstances as a gracious affliction. He sees the, the, the circumstances that, that he's in as discipline to bring about what the Lord wants to bring about in him. And he returns to that which he disregarded in chapter 1. He returns to the, uh, God's word, he returns to prayer, and he returns to obedience. And then in chapter 3, we see that both Jonah and the Ninevites get second chances. But we talked about the fact that he gets, they get more than second chances. They're recipients of God's grace and compassion. And there's a difference. It's God's grace and compassion that leads Jonah to a place where he responds and repents. And that repentance results in obedience. And so he goes to Nineveh and the Ninevites hear the message that's a gracious message of judgment... And they respond in repentance. And God shows compassion and grace toward them due to their repentance and relents and doesn't do what he said he was going to do. And that, of course, brings us to what the story reveals to us about Jonah. Because from the moment we read verse 1 of chapter 4, we realize that Jonah is pretty prideful and that his repentance... Well, really, he didn't repent as we may have realized or thought that he did. He has repented. He has turned from his sin. He's acknowledged that what he did was wrong. and, And he's turned and he's turned in faith to God. Acknowledging that sin. But his repentance is imperfect. And it's imperfect because we see he acknowledges, while he acknowledges his sin, we see that his heart is still obviously not right at all. Something's wrong internally. And I I think it's safe to say he's moved from being the prodigal son at this point to being the older brother. Which is why we read the chapter that we did, or the section that we did, or that Wes read earlier. And we get a glimpse of this back in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Because Jonah kind of compares himself to, to the prideful Ninevites. And really pridefully compares himself to the prideful Ninevites. But it becomes blatantly obvious here in the first verse because here in chapter 4 we read that Jonah was absolutely livid that the Lord had relented and that he didn't do what he said he was going to do to the Ninevites. He's beside himself. And I do want to pause and give credit where credit is due because he does in the midst of this pray to the Lord. And he didn't do that in chapter 1, so he's making progress. But he's still dealing with that arrogance and that pride. And it's run amok. And we see that in verse 2. Because he admits that the whole reason that he didn't go to Nineveh in the first place. Is because he knew that if he shared that message. And if the Ninevites repented. That the Lord would forgive. And that didn't sit right with Jonah. He knew that this was how God would respond. He knew what the Lord had said to Israel through Joel. He knew what the Lord had said uh, to Moses when we read in the book of Exodus. And he uses those same, the, the same phrase. Jonah says, I knew you to be a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The bottom line is Jonah doesn't like the idea of doing for the Ninevites what he believed he should only do for the nation of Israel. And we see that because he uses the phrase, my country. 
very nationalistic in his approach. He didn't want God to do to Assyria what he had repeatedly done to Israel because Assyria had been Israel's oppressor. The bottom line is the Ninevites lived... They lived as they lived and they sinned as they sinned because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know any better because of the darkness in their hearts. We learned that from verse 11. But Jonah, on the other hand, Jonah disobeyed or sinned because and he did his own thing because he didn't like who God was. God was different than he wanted him to be, than Jonah wanted him to be. And he did something different than Jonah wanted him to do. The epitome of arrogance, the epitome of pride, believing Jonah, believing that he knew what was better and that he could do better than God himself. And again, he's so sure he's right in verse four. He's right back where he was in chapter one. And he's saying, I'd rather die than do what you want to do. And I wish I could say that it gets better from here, that it's, it's, uh, you know, things are going to improve, but it doesn't. Because not only is he arrogant and prideful, he's also very self-centered. And we see this exhibited in a couple of ways. First, of course, he's exceedingly angry and wants to die when, when God relents as the Ninevites repent. But later in verse 6, we read that he's exceedingly glad when the plant grows and provides him shade. But then we turn around again in verse 8 and he wants to die again because the plant dies and now he's being scorched under the sun. So his circumstances are back and forth and his, his emotions are up and down with his circumstances. He's not trusting in who God is, not, not falling back on what he knows to be true about God. And he's trusting his, his emotions and his circumstances and basing how he reacts in that way. And secondly, rather, rather than rejoice at the repentance of the Ninevites, rather than stay in the city and share with them the stories about this God, rather than share with them the stories of God's faithfulness over time, even in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness, Rather than, than to walk them through the history so that they might get to know this God better. He leaves the city. He goes and builds a booth so he can sit and commiserate. Well, not commiserate, but he can sit and pout. Because God didn't do what he wanted him to do. He can sit and point fingers. All the while watching, hoping that God would wipe out the city. Totally turned in on himself. He's not only prideful and self-centered, but he obviously is lacking grace and compassion. He lacks grace and compassion. And what I mean is repentance on the part. He didn't have grace toward the Ninevites or compassion toward them. He didn't like the fact that they had repented. Uh, he had no pity on them. Uh, he, cared, he cared more about the plant and it withering than the death of the Ninevites. He was more concerned about that worm killing his plant. And I really believe that that's because in his own mind, again from chapter 2, in his own mind, he repented and then he obeyed. But rather than seeing his obedience as a fruit of his repentance, I believe he saw his obedience as, as a way to make amends. 
And not but beyond amends. Making amends is good. He saw that as penance. He saw that as a way that he could make reparations for what he had done. And so because of that, because of his mindset, then he believed that the Ninevites should do the same thing. Not only were they to repent, but they had they had to repay. They, were, they had they had committed too many atrocities. They had been too cruel to Israel. And so in some way they they needed beyond the repentance, they needed to, to pay up. And the thing about that is that really and truthfully, Jonah would have never been satisfied no matter what the Ninevites had done. It would have never been enough. Because in his mind, the the cruelty was beyond really anything that they can do. The only option in his mind ultimately was their destruction. But Jonah is not the primary character of the narrative. I mean, he's important. His name is on the title of the book. But he's not primary. The one that we are pointed to throughout all four chapters and here in chapter four is God himself. Throughout this book, God reveals himself to be sovereign, powerful, patient, gracious, compassionate, consistent and equitable. He shows himself to be sovereign from beginning to end in the fact that his will is not thwarted. Not even with what Jonah does. And actually he uses Jonah's disobedience to bring about his will. He's sovereign over creation. And nothing is outside of his purview. And we know from the book of Proverbs as we mentioned that even the casting of the lot and how the lots fell. Fell underneath the sovereignty of God. And we see throughout the story that. Everything is being worked out for his glory and for the good of others. We see the Lord. um, We see the Lord working for the good of those that he's called according to his purpose. We see the Lord not willing for any of those that he had chosen before the foundation of the world to perish. And those he had chosen come from every tribe, nation and tongue, including Assyria. We see his power in his use of the sea and the winds and the weather patterns, as well as a large fish, all as instruments of discipline. We see him using growing plants and and worms and the sun and the wind to teach difficult lessons about the hardness of man's heart. And of course, we see the power of God as we see the, the Ninevites repent. We see repentance as a gift and hearts are changed through the ministry of the word and spirit. Something only... The Lord can do. And we see his patience as he deals with this obstinate, prideful, self-centered Jonah. He's patient. And we see it even in the questions that he asks. He asks two very gentle questions throughout chapter 4. And they sound like this. Is it really... And Matt did a great job. Is it really good for you to be angry? So different than Paul. Paul asked the same question in Romans chapter 10 when he said, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Same thought, different tone. God being patient to Jonah. 
And of course, we see his grace and compassion and his equity and his consistency as he deals with both Jonah and the city of Nineveh. Both were deserving of punishment. Both were deserving of death due to their sin. Both both received what they did not deserve. Yes, sins were different. One was the oppressed. One was the oppressor. Some of the sins obviously were more heinous than others. But they were on equal footing regarding the penalty and need. They both received more than a second chance. They received the mercy and grace and compassion of God. And if we're honest, when we, we, when we put those two in perspective, and then we look at how the story points to us, it's not hard for us to identify where we fall, right? It's really not. For who here isn't prideful and self-centered? Who here doesn't at times believe that they know more than God knows and would do a better job than God does? Who here doesn't at times forget that they are recipients of God's grace? Who here doesn't forget that His mercy and His compassion are are so ever-present that without which we would have no hope? Who here doesn't at times believe that they alone are worthy of God's grace and compassion? Who here doesn't struggle at times with being inequitable and inconsistent with our calls for justice? Who here doesn't at times struggle with believing certain sins disqualify others and put salvation out of their reach? Who here at times doesn't struggle with being gracious and compassionate toward others who have done us wrong. Who here doesn't at times feel as though repentance should not be enough and that people ought to pay? In other words, how many of us struggle at times being the older brother? How many of us struggle identifying with Jonah? Jonah could be a poster child for those things that I listed earlier, right? The division, the anger, self-righteousness, expecting demands. But the reality is none of us in this room can take a step back and look at him and point our finger and say, I'm so glad I'm not like him. We can't. We'd like to. We want to. We can't. And that's why we need to look at how this story points us to Christ. We can't end there. We have to look at how it points us to Christ. And that begins by reminding ourselves that Jesus 
is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of God who is of a God who is merciful. He is the God that is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He is that God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. In him who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it's this Jesus, the God-man, who fulfilled the role of the prophet. All of the prophets in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. He was the greater prophet. And actually, he is the prophet that Jonah wasn't. Think about this for a second. Jonah lacked compassion. And he failed to weep. That's that last part of chapter 4. He failed to weep over those to whom the Lord had uh, sent him to. Or to to whom the Lord had, had sent him. He was prideful and self-centered. Yet the Lord Jesus was repeatedly, we read in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus was repeatedly moved with compassion and wept over sinners. And it was Jesus who humbled himself and he did not to come to be served, but to serve and to give up himself as a ransom for many. We see Jonah. Jonah, as one who begrudgingly proclaimed a message of repentance, believing that more should be done. But Jesus proclaimed a message of repentance, knowing that what he did would be enough. Jonah sulkingly went outside the city, built a booth. Sat in it, pouted. I just can't get over this. Sitting there hoping that everyone in the city would die. Jesus went outside the city and died on a cross for those in the city. And not only those in the city, but those from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's the one to which we should look. He's the one to which we should look. Because he and his cross are the answer to division and anger. They're they're the answer. He he has broken down. We learn in our study of Ephesians. He has broken broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Greek. And every other person or people group regardless of their nationality. And their ethnicity. It's the Lord Jesus. It's it's in Christ that now there is no Paul's words. There is no Jew. There is no Greek slave or free male or female female. We're all one in Christ. And Ephesians chapter four tells us being in Christ of how we are to live. And it's opposite of that division and anger. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's only as we look to to Christ that those divisions and anger are dealt with. It's only when we look to Christ and His cross that we receive the answer for our self-righteousness and our virtue signaling. When we look to the cross, we know that there is nothing that we have done to save ourselves. There is nothing that we have done to earn or merit our salvation. There is nothing that we have done to reconcile us to a holy God. There is nothing that we can add to his work. His work is sufficient. And if it's sufficient for us, it's sufficient for everyone. And therefore, the call is to repent and believe, not repent, believe and repay. 
It's not. No matter what the sin. It's Christ and his cross where we find the answer to our favoritism and our discrimination. Because we've been set free to love others. We who were bound in our sin, unable to love, have been set free. Galatians 5, we've been set free to love and we love in Him, by faith, in the power of the Spirit, as we've been loved by Him. And that love, again, is indiscriminate. And we know that we're not only to love one another, but we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And that's possible because of who we are in Christ. And only because of who we are in Christ. And it's He and His cross that are the answer to our superfluous cries of for justice because his cross tells us that he is not that the Lord is not ambivalent or lenient towards sin and injustice but that he hates it he abhors it and has been and will be just in dealing with it and that frees us That frees us to allow the Lord to exercise His justice. That allows us to Him to avenge as He sees fit. Rather than choosing to act as though we know better than Him. And the flip side of that is His cross assures us that God is also gracious and compassionate. Salvation is possible to all who call upon his name, despite imperfect repentance. And we're all grateful for that, aren't we? There's no one out of his reach. There's no one beyond hope. He died for every kind and type of sin, no matter how small, no matter how heinous they might have been. He died for every person. Regardless of every kind of person, regardless of who they are, what they look like, where they live, what they earn or what they've done or left undone that is contrary to his will. He died to save those that he had come to save. And in the words of Fanny Crosby, I love this hymn, O perfect redemption. The purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Nothing else is necessary. And our encouragement for those who do not know the Lord Jesus should be to call on him while he might be found. While he is near. Because he is going to return. And he is going to judge. And finally. He and his cross are the answer when we fail to love as we should. Praise the Lord for that, right? We rest in his love. For he... For for He not only loved us, He loved for us. And His perfect record of love, His complete record of love has been credited to us. And we can rest in Him when we fail.
I know I've said this before. I'm glad there are a lot of guests here because you've never heard me say it. So that's good. But most, if not all, of our problems arise because we're turned inward. We're always looking at ourselves. We're always looking at what we want and what we desire and what we need and what we think and what we believe we're owed and what, what we desire and what we think we're earned. But if we would turn our eyes toward Jesus... And look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth, the division, the anger, the self-righteousness, the virtue signaling, the pride, the self-centeredness. All of those things would grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. It's to him we should look. It is him we proclaim. May it be so. Let's pray together.